Hey folks, this is Josh Schlossberg with the Green Root Podcast. This episode, we have Chuck Willer. Chuck Willer is the director of the Coast Range Association, a nonprofit that has been working since 1991 to find just protections for Western Oregon's forests while supporting a vibrant rural economy. Welcome to the Green Root Podcast, Chuck. Thank you for having me on. Well, I'm glad that you're here because forests, as people who listen to the podcast know, are my favorite topic. And we've talked about a lot of different things. We usually talk about what's wrong <laughs> because we don't know what to really fix or we don't know what is feasible in this world to fix. But it just so happens that Coast Range Association has something called the Climate and Oregon's Industrial Forests, a Green New Deal proposal. So that sounds like it might be a solution. So let's talk a little bit about what that is, why you even bothered to create it in this, this challenging landscape that we're trying to protect. Well, thank you, Josh. Uh, you know, your comment that it's so easy to talk about the problems uh, caused me to reflect on our document, the, uh, the Green New Deal proposal for, for industrial forests. And our largest section is a critique of industrial forest and the problem they pose for doing the things we need to do on climate. And so, uh, yeah, the problems of the world are many. Uh, when I spoke over the past, before the pandemic, I was out making community presentations on a lot of the research that's background to this proposal. And I'd always have a slide or two that talked about six or seven social crises that are occurring at any one moment, uh, income inequality, racial division, uh, the Medicare healthcare crisis. There's all these crises that are contextual to uh, what we focused on here, which is a just transition within the Green New Deal uh, addressing the climate emergency. So uh, our proposal responds specifically to House Resolution 109 introduced by Ocasio-Cortez and Ed Markey, Senator Ed Markey. And uh, the statement by Ocasio-Cortez, uh, February 10, 2019, Think of this Green New Deal resolution as a request for proposals. And so the, the House Resolution 109 is a framework, outlines a set of projects, goals, criteria. And there are two components, one that specifically address the climate issues, and two, how to have a transition to a carbon neutral society in a just and equitable way. That makes it different from many other proposals. And so when we, we took Ocasio-Cortez's statement seriously that, yeah, this is a request for proposals, obviously uh, it's a resolution that expresses values and, and goals. Uh, now it's up to the NGOs and uh, everyone else across the country to say, how would this apply uh, to our region? What, what could we offer? And uh, of course, being here in the Pacific Northwest, uh, we knew the climate emergency requires not just eliminating the carbon output from transportation and all the other sectors, we have to bring carbon back out of the atmosphere because we're way over the 350 or whatever level parts per million, you know, we're at 411 now. So how do we get that carbon out of the atmosphere? Uh, obviously the billionaires have all kinds of industrial schemes, uh, engineer the carbon out. Uh, nothing to date uh, has proven uh, effective or viable, but we do know one thing is effective and that is the forest of the planet can take carbon out of the air and store it where it was once stored before massive deforestation. So 
you know, that was the background. You know, we're quite aware of Pacific Northwest forest. Uh, we argue that the coast range forest in particular, but Pacific Northwest forest are the greatest carbon storing forest on the planet. And so every lost acre of Pacific Northwest forest to industrial plantations is a massive uh, loss of carbon storage and part of that excess carbon in the atmosphere that's warming the planet. So that, that was the frame coming into uh, taking Ocasio-Cortez's request for proposals seriously. So we said, okay, what, what would be uh, uh, the proper approach? What, how would we build up carbon on the uh, forest landscape? Well, the forest landscape, as I think you know, in the Pacific Northwest is divided between the public lands, specifically the federal lands, and the private lands. The public lands under the Northwest Forest Plan, the federal forests, have tremendous storehouse of carbon. So going forward within a climate context, there's, there's a whole set of statements that need to be visited for federal lands. But that was not that was not the purpose of our project. We're looking at the industrial landscape that has been cut. The native forest was cut a long time ago, and is now in a fully regulated industrial uh, uh, plantation landscape. And it's really important to understand the nature of that landscape in terms of the carbon problem, and so. Our proposal addresses those industrial lands owned by large corporate actors and takes into consideration this ju just transition, which we believe we are maybe, at least in the Pacific Northwest, the first NGO that's offered a solution that talks about a just and equitable transition. There's ways to do uh, build up carbon uh, out on the landscape particularly on the industrial lands, that I think fails the test of a just and equitable, equitable transition. And we go into that in, in the proposal. And we can talk about that on this podcast, what the, what the basic problem is with cap and trade or direct payments to timber companies to uh, grow larger forests. Uh, so our proposal is unique in that way. Uh, it addresses 4.4 million acres of fully regulated industrial forest in Western Oregon. That's a large landscape. Uh, we also wanted to scale the proposal to the climate emergency. In other words, we're not talking about let's be pointed in the right direction or let's uh, do something that's good we're talking about a well understood existential crisis and what the proper response in a material sense should be. And that is, how do you get the job done? Not how do you just point in the right direction? And you know, a lot of the government, uh, a lot of the things in the Paris Accord are really being pointed in the right direction and making progress down the road. I think there was an article in today's press, uh, a study came out that just the Paris protocols were going to come up far short of even meeting a two degree uh, warming limit. So a lot has to be done and, and it has to be taken very seriously. And that's what we tried to do. Okay. And the constraint on us is how, is how to take into consideration rural communities tribes and timber workers in such a way that you just don't shut down the forest and throw everyone out or not make a uh, not integrate those forests which are overworked now and uh, keep them a working landscape that still supports communities so it was a balancing act between uh, going as hard as we can for carbon sequestration and addressing the just transition that's excellent. Yeah, thank you for going into the background, all that, because I think a lot of folks are not really aware 
that there are two classes of forests, as in this public versus private. Of course, a lot of people who think public lands, they think, oh yeah, you mean that's all wilderness and national park? And it's like, well, so then you're getting into all that. But the private land thing, it, it tends to be, I don't want to say a blind spot, although it is a blind spot for a lot of environmental groups. So when you live in Oregon, as I used to, you can't drive very far without seeing hideous private land clear cuts. They're pretty glaring. The only place I think that I've seen them worse was there are places on Vancouver Island that were that were pretty hideous. And there is some stuff along the uh, Washington coast where nobody goes that's pretty nasty as well. But it's a common feature in Oregon and sometimes that's on public lands, but they hide the public lands ones a little better. A lot, most of this is on private lands. But what ends up happening is even once people figure out, okay, well, this is also an issue. And then of course there's the aerial spray issue and, and all, all the issues that come along with that. But what happens is people are like, oh, well, those are private lands. So what are we going to do? And that sort of ends up being the MO of a lot of the environmental groups are like, we're, we're working on public lands. And personally, I've always prioritized public lands just because they're the last best places, right, that have yet to be completely stripped out. So they're extremely important. And no one is saying, let's not protect those areas. But to ignore the private forest lands, which I don't know, are, are they what the percentage of forest lands is it are there more private forest lands than public forest lands in Oregon or is it similar well in western Oregon uh it's not just about acreage it's about site productivity ah yeah and so really when you look at the growing potential on the industrial forest lands they're about equal probably to the public forest because uh, a lot of the public forests are higher elevation slower growing Right. Uh, the, the industrial forest firms have grabbed the best, fastest growing forest, low elevation. Right. Exactly. That's an excellent point, because you also you get further to the coast, those trees just fatten up really fast. But something's at right. 9000 feet. It definitely takes a lot longer to grow. Um, but but basically, the idea is that there is a lot of private forest land. It's not being addressed in any way that has really made major changes. Now, there have been groups such as yours and a few others who have been dealing with that for a while. Roy Keane, he was on the program before. He's talked a lot about private forest lands, but it's not something that is, is discussed much. So I guess I would just ask you before we get into some more of the details of the plan there, why do you suppose it is that so few environmental groups, even ones dedicated to forests, will even really talk about private forest lands? Well, Interestingly, in the current period, probably in the past two or three years, there's been a pivot towards private lands, uh, private forest issues, at least here in Oregon. One of the reasons being is that when it comes to salmon recovery, uh, some of the endangered, other endangered species, uh, the private lands in Oregon were lagging way behind Washington, California's uh, regulation of private forest. It, it illustrates the power of the timber industry in uh, this small state. And so uh, there has been a pivot. Uh, the, the emphasis is on uh, forest practices, changing, uh, you know, trying to get stream buffers and things like that. Here's, here's the frame we adopted in, in terms of our approach on this proposal for carbon. And that is, we don't talk about forest practices because forest practices are the outcome of your management plan or framework. The management framework comes out of your basic enterprise proposition as a company. And that flows from the ownership structure of the, of the firm. And so, uh, we looked at what's the nature of forest enterprise on the industrial landscape. And that's the financial management of forests. In other words, their enterprise is not to grow timber, really. Their enterprise is return on investment. They grow dollars. They don't grow timber directly. 
And so you, if you take a fine, if your enterprise is about return on investment, in other words, servicing investors, your management plan is gonna, is gonna logically flow from that. And the management plan on industrial forests uh, is short rotation, financially efficient rotations using clear-cut final harvest, least cost to the firm. And then it has a workforce structure that's uh, probably not unique to Oregon, but it's a workforce structure of subcontracted workers. So uh, Weyerhaeuser and the big companies, they do have some loggers and haulers, but for the most part, there's a, a hundred plus independent companies that really do the logging, hauling, and replanning. And so, and then within that, that uh, operations level, white males generally do the hauling and logging and a people of color, generally of Mexican and Central American heritage do the replanting because everyone's broken up into these uh, little firms that get contracted, everyone's divided. There's no connectivity amongst the workers and everyone's bid against each other. So there's been terrible wage pressure downward and a very unhappy situation exists in the workforce. At the same time, we've had a transition in ownership from traditional uh, old school firms that had mills and owned land to land owning timber growers that are financially uh, linked to real estate investment trust or timber investment management organizations. They are the dominant owner uh, in Western Oregon. And the reason, and that is a tax status. And the reason that they have that, they've all transitioned into independent real estate investment trusts is that they don't pay federal income tax. The profits are sent directly to the investors who then pay personal income tax or whatever. And they don't pay it at the rate you and I pay it. They generally pay the profits or the tax they pay is the 15 to 20% capital gains rate. So this is, this is the whole restructuring of Western Oregon's forest lands as investor equity, growing money for those investors and using a management and a set of practices appropriate to that enterprise. That is what we, that is the critique we've worked on for a decade now, but particularly in the past three or four years, uh, I've been touring Western Oregon speaking about the tax avoidance. Uh, and here's a, here's a factoid that most almost no one knows in the audience. And that is when you grow forests for money and you have a short rotation, you're actually sacrificing productive uh, productivity. So they're, uh, they are sacrificing 20 to 40% saw timber volume to grow fast growing plantations and cutting them at 40, 45, 50 year rotations. Most people can't understand why that happens, but because they're growing money at a compound rate at 50 years, you, you would not keep money uh, at, at, a, at a, let's say a 5% discount rate or a 5% interest return uh, against any alternative thing. You, you cut based on that compound rate of interest growing until you have to cut. And that's, I haven't really found a way to explain to audience, uh, audiences uh, who generally are, let's say, don't have a nose for businesses, business uh, finance uh, or quick mathematics in your mind of why compound interest rate basically at 50 years, if it's a discount rate backwards, uh, nothing in nature that is assessed as a discount rate has any value that's over 50 years. You know, if, if we were to destroy the planet at year 100 and, uh, and apply a five, seven, 10% discount rate, we wouldn't do anything today. 
because it just isn't worth anything 100 years from now. So that kind of financial mentality is what we're up against. Now, how that plays out on the landscape is Weyerhaeuser says they cut 2% a year. Okay, 2% a year is a 50-year rotation on average. That means because every year they cut 2%, their entire landscape is this stair step of one, you know, one-year-old plantations, two-year-old plantations, three, right up to 50, and then it's cut. That means the average age of a warehouser tree is 25 years of age. Now you look at a 25-year-old tree compared to the 200-year-plus native forest that would have been on those lands, that's the carbon deficit. That's the potential to add carbon. And so uh, we, uh, we refer to these landscapes of young plantation forests. And you know, a 25-year average forest could be old for a, a high site. They might be cutting on a 35-year rotation. We call them carbon deserts. Very little carbon is out there in the standing forest compared to what was once there. So our proposal is to sequester atmospheric carbon, which is required under the climate emergency, and to change the enterprise so that the firms are not looking at growing money. They're looking at, there's, they're motivated to grow carbon uh, under our proposal. And we can explore what specifically that proposal is. Uh, so that's the framework. That's 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 what we understand uh, going on out there now. Uh, what's interesting about investor-controlled landscapes for the forest is that they make quite a bit of money. I mean, these are the best-growing lands in the uh, U.S. Uh, and they make a good profit. But here's the thing: another fact that few people uh, realize. If you're a real estate investment trust sending that money to your investors, you know, it's, it's your gross earnings. Uh, what's, you know, you pay your interest on your debt, you pay other things, you pay your big executives, their million dollar bonuses, all that kind of stuff. And then you send the money to the investors. When you were out here uh, in Oregon, you probably heard a lot of these lands were owned by teacher pension funds and things like that. Uh, the industrials would sell this benevolent image of who the investors are. But here's the fact, equities in the United States, 90% of equities, stocks, bonds, whatever, are owned by the most affluent 10% of households. 60% of all US equities are owned by the richest 1%. So all this growing for money to send money to investors, looking out at these huge landscapes of carbon desert under with depressed working populations in the lowest sector, the Hispanic, uh, workers totally oppressed, all benefits the 10% wealthiest or the 1% wealthiest. That's where the money's going. And many of these people are, they're highly educated. They understand what's going on. They support climate. Do they realize their investments in Northwest industrial forests are doing this? Are, are, are these carbon deserts? are really grinding on the workforce. And, and the corporate managers, the corporate owners or managers of these huge landscapes, they're very really lean, small firms. The workforce is actually working for somebody else. So they, they don't have liability when it comes to, you know, worker safety or any of that. It's all contracted out. So they've got quite a deal going here and it's totally unjust. And so that's, that, that's the reality. We said, okay, Green New Deal, House Resolution 109 says, how do we make a transition? How would we build these, the carbon back up in these lands and do right socially out on the landscape? Now, one of the things we 
uh, looked at, and, and again, uh, we're not talking, uh, one of the things people think about is how many poor people are in the area. But it's really not about poor people. It's about people who are struggling hand to mouth, people who live paycheck to paycheck. And the United Way, interestingly, about oh, eight years ago, looked at uh, demographic uh, and socioeconomic data on income at the census track level across the United States. But in, in, in Oregon, in the Pacific Northwest, actually a set of researchers did an analysis here. And there is a census track analysis of how many households in each rural area live either in poverty or paycheck to paycheck. And they're called ALICE, uh, asset limited, income constrained, but yet employed. That, that's the acronym. We've got uh, many uh, communities across the industrial landscape out in the rural areas, 50 to 60% of the population in some rural areas, 70% of the population are either Alice income limited or in poverty. In 60 to 70% of the households. And you wonder why reactionary political movements are taking hold in the rural landscape. These people are, they're just not getting a fair deal. Yeah. yeah that's, so that's, that's some of the background. Mm -hmm. That's extremely, extremely helpful to understand because all too often we take an environmental issue and keep it as an environmental issue or a social issue and make it a social issue. And I would say both factions have been guilty of doing that. Social issues are like, what, what's the, what's the environment? Who cares? People are struggling. It's like, well, guess what? We need an environment to even have a world in which we struggle. And then folks in the environmental movement, a lot of times are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. People, people, but we got to care about the natural world. What you're saying here is we need to be combining. And that's what we talk a lot about Green Root Podcast. And I think everyone, if they stop to think about it, knows that, but there are so few proposals that genuinely and truly address it. I think there are sometimes lip service given, but it's not necessarily happening. But in this case, it seems to be, so you're, you're making that distinction between, okay, maybe not everyone is living in poverty, which is awful. It needs to be addressed, but there is a level that is maybe just above poverty. It's almost as bad as poverty. And that is a lot of what's happening in that area. So a lot of those folks have been rightly upset, as you said, and so maybe susceptible to focusing on things that aren't, let's just say, aren't in the best interest of everyone. But if we can actually reach out and assist these people in a legitimate way, then all of a sudden we can be actually changing things on the ground, literally. Because what, what I really like about this is, so you're not just talking about forest practices. You mentioned it's not really just about forest practices. I, for long, have focused a lot on that. And I still think, obviously, that is relevant. But what you're doing here is you're taking a look at what is driving these destructive forest practices. What is that root cause behind it and trying to address that? And I, I think it's absolutely necessary. I mean, I'm a big wilderness guy and I think there should be land where, no, guess what? Sorry, you don't get the, no, no extraction. Personally, I don't think there should be extraction on public lands. Now, private lands, I don't, obviously we need to get forest products from somewhere. We can address whether or not we are wasting them or using them in the best way and all that. But we know there is going to be some logging done that is obviously has impacts, but there's ways we can do it in which there are much minimal impacts. And at the same time, we are being aware of the fact that there are people who are employed, who are living and have lived in this area for generations and generations. And this is, this is the economy that's available to them. These are the jobs that's available to them. What a lot of us don't want to do is like, well, sorry, but if your job is out there that is continuing to contribute to the eco crisis, we don't we're, we don't like that. But then we don't have a thing because we'd like to do this instead. But what this seems to be about is saying, well, there is another way we can work on this. We don't just have to be saying no to stuff. We can say that yes to something that is better and different. And what I am seeing from this. And some folks have been talking about some elements of this. Craig Patterson has also spoken a little bit about this is the Pacific Northwest can be 
one of the best examples of a situation in which we are balancing economy with ecology because of the fact that it is one of the biggest or if not the the most carbon stored in the US, right? Then there is a lot of bang for your buck. So this can be a real meaningful contribution. And at the same time, it can be like, well, look how we can actually do And I don't love the term working landscape because I think it gets abused, but that's that's kind of accurate. It's a working landscape. We can do a proper version of this that can be a model for elsewhere. So I think I pretty much just repeated everything you said, but I'm just <laughs> trying to simplify it in my own mind and to show the listeners how important this proposal can be for not just climate, not just forests, but a model of how we can be doing things in other ways. This can apply in many ways to agriculture in the Midwest that we talked about another podcast, maybe oceans, who knows? But so the next question would be, that's all well and good, but how exactly would this be implemented? What would be done instead to change this? And why would any of these timber companies go along with this rather than just fight tooth and nail? Uh, that's, that's really the crux of the matter. Uh, it's what we grappled with. Uh, two points. Uh, you have capital in the classic sense, capitalism, capitalism. You have, that's the investors' equities. You have nature and you have people. You can pick any two of those as your strategy, but you can't pick all three, not when it comes to forests. And so cap and trade, paying uh, money to grow bigger forests is picking capital and nature. You grow bigger forest, good for nature, and you pay capital their money. You let people out of work and you have nothing for them. What we chose is to pick nature, grow bigger forests through a carbon sequestration strategy and pick people. There was, there's, we had to pull the plug and come up with or grapple with the problem of you can't service capital. So what, uh, what did that imply? It implied a couple of things. Uh, we want to sequester carbon and we couldn't service capital. Uh, researching the issue, it's simple. It's called land reform. As you uh, may know, uh, these properties out here, whether it's Weyerhaeuser or any of these big companies, they are often, often those lands have been bought and sold three, four times in the past 30, 40 years. Clatsop County, I think, has had four major owners. It's large uh, land. Sir James Goldsmith, Hanson Brothers, Crown Zeller back originally. Now Weyerhaeuser uh, owns a good chunk of it. And uh, uh, TIA's operation owns a big uh, chunk of it now. These lands are bought and sold. In fact, under REIT ownership, uh, if you go to a REIT uh, or a timber investment management organization and say, make an offer 20% over the land's value, assessed value, they are obligated to go to the investors and say, we have an offer to buy, just as a fiduciary uh, responsibility. Every This is just because the money, the land is just considered an asset, an investment, there's no commitment. So we looked at land reform as the key strategy because in our enterprise man, uh, forest management practices uh, continuum, it's really the enterprise uh, and the ownership that's the problem. And so what we, did, what we saw in land reform is land reform plus social benefit enterprise. And so the idea is to buy out a substantial percentage of the industrial lands under a Green New Deal national mobilization. And we had to stop right here, perhaps, and talk about what a Green New Deal national mobilization is all about. This is not uh, state level 
let's be green and be carbon free by 2050 with a lot of words. This is really getting the job done uh, in a 10 to 15, 20 year period. And there's only one entity in the United States that can do that. And that's the federal government. And why is that? Because only the federal government has the spending power to finance the transformation. States do not have it. States live off of taxes or borrowing. Uh, you and I live off of in, uh, income or whatever. Uh, businesses live off of sales or borrowing. Only the federal government owns the money system, controls the banking system, and owns the Federal Reserve. It can spend unlimited amount of money for whatever it chooses, constrained only by inflation, which means constrained only by the productive basis of the economy. So there's two entities in the United States that can make money out of thin air and spend. And that are banks. They do it every day in their normal course of loans. They create money. That's the normal entity institution that creates money. The federal government does it too. Uh, people call it deficit spending or whatever. Any check authorized by Congress to be spent by the federal government by law will clear. There's, there's no, the federal checks cannot bounce. Uh, and so the uh, Green New Deal, a national mobilization to transform transportation, housing, energy systems, the whole uh, infrastructure, that kind of mobilization, uh, we're looking at uh, at least 1.5 to $2 trillion a year of direct spending over 10, 15 years. That's a huge, a huge amount of money. What I noticed is that if you're spending, if the federal government is spending that kind of money, I was in uh, Lincoln County uh, making a presentation. Lincoln County has 50,000 people. It's on the central coast, great uh, forested region. And I asked people, if you're spending 1.5 trillion a year, this is how much money per person is being spent. Lincoln County has 50,000 people how much Green New Deal money would be spent each year in Lincoln County? And our Lincoln County people are used to, you know, listening to the state government talk about things. We'll get a, a $1.2 million grant to do this, and there'll be maybe $10 million spent on that. And the audience really couldn't do the numbers in their head. I said, that means that $200 million a year will be spent every year in just Lincoln County, re-transforming everything, housing, transportation, etc. They couldn't believe it. I said, that is what is going, that is what has to happen. That is what is being talked about to happen. And that's what can happen. And that is what the federal government can do at the scale of a, an emergency, right. whether it's the COVID emergency, whether it's a war, World War II, the federal government can mobilize that kind of resource, those kinds of resources to transform things. And when you're talking the state's program or whatever's program, that is just crumbs compared to what can happen. So if you're talking that kind of money and that kind of power, why not talk about land reform for that 350 parts per million to 410 or 20 by the time this gets going problem of excess carbon in the atmosphere. We've got the best forest in the world. We could use big money to pay warehouser investors to grow carbon and just let the workforce go. By, it would be cheaper in the long term to buy out warehouser, mm -hmm. sequester carbon and sequester the cash that's now going to the investors locally. And that way there'd be a win-win people and nature. Capital would be because under our constitution, we can't take 
You can't expropriate property. It would have to be bought out at a fair market of value, whatever that means when you're buying jumbo uh, amounts of land. And Weyerhaeuser could go do the next big thing in terms of building products, start making uh, building products out of probably hemp fiber or alternative things that would be better for the environment than uh, keeping these carbon forests as carbon deserts. Right. So uh, people don't understand a some of the, the way this all pencils out, the scale of the crisis on the one hand and the scale of the solution and where the solution lies. So land reform uh, is what we researched. And this really is a huge uh, topic. Now, you, refor using land to achieve conservation goals is well explored in the US society. Conservation trusts are everywhere. Uh, you know, land is bought and private, I'm talking private land is bought uh, all the time for conservation goals. What's not uh, done is land being bought to change enterprise. You know, that kind of land reform is off the table. Now, it's there's, I, we don't have time here to go into it, but that's something to research. And it goes back to the agrarian transition, the, de, uh, the uh, depopulation of rural lands so that industrial workers could be generated in the mills and the mines and how in uh, how that whole agrarian transition was the rise of property rights over the human condition. And that's really where we ended up. Now in the early 70s, there was an attempt to revive, uh, well, I should say the 1930s New Deal, there was an effort to do land reform on behalf of people to have their uh, small farms. Uh, there were experiments done in the East and various places, but powerful senators in the West blocked that, did not allow a land reform strategy to really take hold. And there's reasons. In the early 70s, uh, Gaylord Nelson and other people were trying to restart in the ag reform movement, restart a land reform agenda. At the same time in the 70s, the modern environmental movement was uh, coming to, was beginning, Earth Day 1970. What happened was, is that these landmark environmental laws from the early 70s, Clean Water Act, National uh, 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 Clean Air Act, and particularly uh, uh, public lands management under, uh, uh, NEPA. What the, what the political forces in Washington worked out with the environmental, uh, mist, the environmentalist was you can have point source pollution reform, but not non-point source pollution, ag and forest. And you can have increased access to public lands management under NEPA, but agricultural reform and non-point solution is off the table. And the environmental community took that and ran with it and left land reform or land conservation on private lands to neoliberal uh, private capital in mostly in the form of the Nature Conservancy. Right. That split in the 70s created a whole historic trend that we arrive in 2010, 2000 with a whole cadre of environmental activists that don't even know the origin of where they came from and the deal, the compromise, what was off table, what was on table and how they were focused on public lands as part of this continuing a, a agricultural transition. Now there were other things that they were uh, interested in, mining and drilling and gas and all this stuff, uh, the powers to be. But we researched some of this and we became aware of, oh, I, we see what's going on here. Don't mess with private land when it comes to the enterprise, unless you kind of have a neoliberal approach like the Nature Conservancy. You know, you buy it and you do it in a very targeted way. 
So once we saw that, we said, well, let's just push this. Let's go forward. Let's talk about land reform. Let's talk about the reasons you want to have the social benefit transition of enterprise. So then we said, okay, working forest conservation easements are a known tool. They're used in uh, conservation all the time. So we have a legal document that you could have carbon grants for land purchase. The carbon grant would come with a working forest conservation easement. Uh, and a conservation easement is uh, a special uh, attachment to the title, which allows multi-generation enforcement. Most contracts, the courts will not enforce multi-generational. And so that's the specialness of an easement. Working forest conservation, conservation easement just means you're going to have some constraint on the management of a working forest. They're legitimate, they're recognized, they're, they're in play. Carbon grants, grants, land uh, acquisition grants would be part of the New Deal's uh, uh, program. Now, for what purpose, who would buy the land? So what is a social benefit enterprise uh, that make it different than the enterprises we now have, investor or timber enterprise? Well, talking to some of our colleagues who inevitably come from and live in an urban landscape, uh, some of them said, well, nationalize the land. That's what we'll do. Would you, you know, just use the Green New Deal money to buy the land and nationalize it? And I said, well, you know, the problem with that is, is that the federal government's forests do not allow people any to live on it. And enterprise is highly constrained. So we're talking current industrial lands. They're deep pauperate in terms of carbon, they're carbon deserts. I don't think national forest or nationalization is the way to go. Oh, okay. Well, here's what hardly any of our colleagues were aware of. Almost all the electricity in rural Oregon is delivered by electric co-ops. Much of the telephone is delivered by telephone co-ops. The internet is delivered by many of the electric co-ops. There is a social benefit layer that exists in rural lands and it delivers electricity 20 to 40% cheaper than the people in the investor owned electric uh, companies serving Portland and Willamette Valley and Corvallis and Salem, Eugene does have uh, eWeb, you know, a public entity. But most people in Oregon pay 20 to 40% more or pay more because they have an investor owned electric company. The rural people are very familiar with co-ops. They've run them for the past 70 years successfully. None of these right-wing economists, and they almost all are right-wing, I've never seen a paper that says, oh, they do a terrible job of running the electric thing. In fact, in California, Pacific Power, uh, whose line started many fires, there's a movement to, to take over Pacific Power and break it up into co-ops because they do a good job. So I said, uh, we, we, we were talking about this, okay, land reform, buy forest land with Green New Deal funding, uh, land purchase grants, working forest conservation easements, new entities, which are basically uh, forest co-ops. Go, the light bulb went on. I mean, as we had our discussion, this, isn't, this is really isn't radical at all. This is, this is something rural people understand. And if you have a co-op, what are you doing? You're the working forest conservation easement would mandate a management strategy that builds up forest carbon. At the same time, the co-op is a strategy to sequester cash that would have gone to investors because the co-op members or workers are the investors. It was just a no-brainer. It, it, it made sense. And we lay it all out in a coherent uh, argument that I think makes sense uh, with the central uh, tenant being that either it's unjust to pay the current private investors to sequester carbon and just throw the communities and the workers to the uh, out the door or 
they're incapable of doing it. They will never do it because, you know, it's like, okay, I've got a, I got a nice house cat here. And every time I leave it to watch the canary, when I go to the store, I come back and the canary's gone. You can't change. It's in their DNA to grow money. That's what they're, that's what they are. So recognizing that we need a social benefit enterprise framework on a new ownership layer of industrial forest. And it would be paid for or financed by uh, the spending that would happen under the Green New Deal. It would not be a big dent on spending, mm -hmm. particularly when you start talking Congress sitting down with Weyerhaeuser and going, not only are we gonna buy 2 million of your acres or whatever, but we're gonna give you a sweet deal to move over into hemp. Now, don't mess with us on the price per acre. You know, don't mess with that, you know, cause we can make life hard for you. Since mm -hmm. you sell 40% of your logs export anyway, mm -hmm. you know, they go through our ports that we finance. Yep. Uh, you know, so you, you can talk, you can play hardball with big companies, uh, which of course, you know, Congress doesn't play hardball with any companies today because it's corrupted by money. But our point is this, no matter how you might think this is not realistic, the climate emergency, unlike other crises, is gonna, is, will come at us unrelenting. Mm -hmm. It will get worse and worse and worse. And in Oregon, not only will we see uh, the direct effects of a warming climate, we're probably going to, the biggest impact on the state is we're going to be the home for numerous climate refugees fleeing more arid climates, uh, fleeing more fire-prone climates, uh, and fleeing uh, low-lying areas that are inundated with uh, high tide surge. And as those people come to Oregon, Oregon will wake up. But what we have to do is explain the proper tracking and the proper way to build up these carbon deserts into significant carbon storehouses and have it done in such a way that the right wing nuts out in the rural landscape kind of have their arguments cut out from under them. And that's social benefit enter enterprise. Uh, we've had colleagues say, oh, you want you want to have uh, these things run by the good old boys? You know, that's, that's the kind of alienated way of talking about rural landscapes. And I said, well, they've run the co uh, electric co-ops for 70 years and haven't screwed up. It's firewalled the working forest conservation easement. The reason you get this free money is, is sideboards them. And so you, 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 you would have to comply without compliance. You know, you would be, you would have uh, probably the, uh, the co-op put in receivership for being out of compliance. So I think if you, if you allow the benefits of a working forest to flow locally, build up carbon, and here's the thing, if you build up carbon for 20, 30 years, you recover the lost production that they sacrifice today. They're constrained today by the financial calculation of compound interest. No one, no one objects to that constraint. Why would you object to a carbon constraint in a working forest carbon, carbon, uh, carbon easement when in 20, 30 years, you're gonna end up with just as much production today with continued buildup of carbon. Mm -hmm. it, it, these, are, these are all facts that I never see put on the table, never see discussed. They're hard, they're, they're not, these are not, uh, I didn't make them up. This, these are science. These are published uh, articles that you can just read. And uh, it's, it's kind of the way narratives are constructed to achieve the ends of somebody. And that is, uh, in Oregon here, we generally see the narrative being nature and capital. It's really not about nature and people. And so all kinds of narratives get constructed that make it seem sensible to do the things we do.
Yeah, I think that's a beautiful summation of what's going on. I think this is a beautiful proposal. I definitely support it. Uh, I know there are folks out there who are like, well, I want to work on aerial spraying and, and I want to deal with uh, timber tech stuff. You could still do that. <laughs> but this, I feel like does, it gets at that driving force behind why things started to go wrong in the forest. And I guess my final question for you is probably a tough one and uh, see, see if you can answer it or not. This, this is a hard <laughs> one, but uh, so I, th I think it makes perfect sense. So I don't think there is anything lacking in this plan. I didn't read every word of it, but I skimmed through enough of it and you talking about it. It makes sense to me based on my background understanding of what's going on in Oregon's forests. Yeah, this, this is great and I fully endorse it. Now the question is, is there the political will to make this happen? So before answering it, let me lay it out in two, two aspects and, and see just what you have to say about it. Now, when it comes to environmental stuff, over the last couple decades, people at least seem to care more generally. It's become more mainstream to care about the climate and just environmental issues. So that's a really great thing. For most people, when you ask them what's their concerns politically, environment is not anywhere near the top, not even climate. And then even you have environmental groups who are there all over the place working on little things here and there and tinkering. And, and some of them are, are maybe making things worse. Others are trying their best. Others are just not being listened to. And then you have the government and you used before an analogy of what's going on with the, the timberlands well, I guess it was an analogy, but so basically they're doing the short-term deal for capital and, and whatnot, but over the long-term, they're actually harming themselves. Like they could be growing more wood over a longer time, term, time period if they had a different way of actually looking at things. But instead they're like, well, whatever, we're growing money rather than trees. Let's just make it happen quickly. My argument is that government and politicians, they're like growing that short-term money thing. And their short-term money is votes and seemingly a healthy economy by not shifting things around too much. And they're sacrificing the long-term of actually health to the planet and to the citizens, because by then they'll probably be dead and no longer in office. Cause basically you have to die to leave office at this point, it seems like for a lot of these politicians. So basically the question is, do you see a political will on the governmental level and also the citizen level, which is going to be necessary to push these uh, politicians to do anything that means anything. Well, currently, I don't see that will. I see lots of lip service. I think it's uh, Greta Thunberg has pointed out uh, all over the world, politicians say nice words. And then she points out in the facts speak otherwise. So uh, like I say, you can, you can have a, you can have a uh, outrageous condition with race like we have in the United States here for 200 plus years. And it can just be an ongoing crisis that's never addressed. Uh, you can have a healthcare system that doesn't serve a huge proportion of the population and, and, and uh, extracts way too much uh, costs and it will it could perpetually go on. Uh, we have a military industrial complex that rolls on and on. The, there are some things that are social that can just be kind of perpetual and the society settles into it. The, uh, you know, the class structure and the structure of power can just maintain control and you know, serve the interest of those in power and the uh, elites. I'm not naive to the facts of history and the structure of uh, modern societies that have been, you know, industrial societies. But then there are crises that will uh, come about that threaten the elites, that, th that fracture the elites. Uh, that, uh, you know, the Vietnam War was a good example. Uh, the, the ruling elites became divided. They couldn't see, uh, they couldn't see eye to eye on it. And that was an opportunity for a, a, a mass mobilization to change the politics. 
And so from one of, oh, we're going to win this war to one, how can we get out? You know, even if it's the so-called first defeat for the United States. Uh, I think the climate, uh, like environmental issues, you're right. They're a mile wide and a few inches deep when it comes to voters being animated. But the climate's a different thing. I, I have a feeling it's deepening down. It's, it's, a, it's getting to be wider in terms of its recognition. And, uh, and it's just going to be, like I say, it's going to be unrelenting and it threatens not just the 70% of the population that's marginalized. It threatens the 30% that dominates, particularly the 1% that's the really have their uh, hands on the levers of power. Everyone is in this little lifeboat. I don't think, uh, I think that, uh, I think at some point there'll be a political window that opens. Uh, the young folks, I think, have got a good nose about climate and they have a good nose about social issues. Much more uh, uh, sophisticated than the older generations. Uh, who, particularly uh, my generation, and that uh, was very much shaped by Cold War ideology and uh, just a nonsensical false narrative that dominated right up until really, I think, the 2008 financial crisis, this whole counter-revolution that's been going on since 1970 against progressive forces that were unleashed in an earlier era. And... Uh, that cracked, and and it's the forces at play: the wealth inequality, uh, the corruption of political purpose, uh, the climate crisis, healthcare crisis. Uh, people are waking up, particularly young people. They understand social solutions, uh, and uh, like a good, like a lot of good forest activists of old, wilderness uh, protectors like Bob Marshall great socialist, all of them. <laughs> Bob Marshall's house in Washington, D.C., when he wasn't fighting for wilderness, was a outpost of socialist propaganda. That's part of our lost history. But social solutions and forests um, go hand in hand. It's just the nature of forests, their long-term growth, their long-term uh, perspective and the contradiction of the long-term and capital. Capital, like you pointed out, is short-term. How fast can we make our money? Uh, and as soon as you get into the compounding interest rate, and finance and all that finance stuff, which we go into a little bit in the paper. I mean, the proposal uh, dives into uh, corporate uh, cash flow. And, uh, you know, Warehouser is not just shipping a lot of money to its investors or in its top management or its generous benefits uh, to its work, uh, to its employees who don't, you know, don't mostly don't do any work, contractors uh, do it. So uh, that cash, but they have $6 billion in uh, corporate debt. That's, that's $6 billion in debt are bonds. Well, who owns bonds? I, do you know anybody that buys corporate bonds? I don't. That's the 1% wealthiest people. A lot of foreign investors will buy corporate junk bonds, uh, corporate bonds. So you got all this cash coming off the forest. It goes to the bondholders, goes to banks. It goes to the, the corporate white folk management. It goes to uh, the stockholders who then pay only 10, 15 to 20% capital gains. It's, it's a huge ripoff. If we could capture the, val the surplus value off those lands for social benefit, uh, the equation changes. The climate crisis has to be solved through a people and nature set of solutions. The electrical grid, we need microgrids in, at community levels that are democratically controlled so that when all this local production comes on from wind, solar and wind, we control it. We management, 
manage it. We benefit from it. Uh, there's a whole rejiggering that needs to take place in terms of productive enterprise that could happen under a Green New Deal. And capital's freaking out about it, but, you know, these folks realize they're in the same sinking lifeboat. They can't escape to the island. Chances are the island's going to be gone before my home's gone. So, you know, it, it's uh, there's going to be a moment when an opportunity arises and the science is clear. Uh, we've got a limited amount of time and we're in, we're not just in a climate crisis, we're in a climate emergency. Why don't we talk like that? Why don't we think solutions appropriate to an emergency? And why not have, why, if we're gonna have a better world when we're all, when it's all said and done, let's have a better world for everyone not a few elites. Makes sense to me. Well, that's pretty optimistic, <laughs> actually. And uh, I, I tend to agree. I think you're right. Things getting so bad that even those who have been immune to the destruction will no longer be immune. So, so that sounds... That sounds like we might have a chance. And so folks can check out Climate and Oregon's Industrial Forest Green New Deal proposal at coastrange.org. That's also going to be in the description. Thanks so much, Chuck, for taking the time to talk to us and doing all that you're doing. Well, thank you, Josh. Uh, I do get a little excited and go off on this topic. Uh, been working on the issue for 30 years, industrial forest, forest in general. And uh, the climate emergency has uh, kind of electrified our thinking. And, uh, you know, it, not only are we going to be victims of an unsolved climate crisis, we have the opportunity to be major contributors to its solution. Yeah. So it's a double, double uh, responsibility to get active and think right at the right scale. I totally agree. Well, thanks again, Chuck. Thank you.